Engaging Leader, Episode 94, Collective Genius, The Art and Practice of Leading Innovation, featuring Greg Brando. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Are you a leader who builds teams that innovate again and again? Creating and sustaining an organization that is consistently innovative is extremely difficult and rare. Now, conventional leaders see their role as conjuring up a vision and inspiring others to make it happen. But the best leaders of innovation see their role quite differently. At least that's according to the authors of the new book, Collective Genius, The Art and Practice of Leading Innovation. And here today to talk to us about how to lead organizational creativity is Greg Brando. Greg has served as chief tech executive at some amazing companies, such as Next, Pixar, and Disney. And he's worked with some amazing people like Steve Jobs, Ed Catmull, and John Lasseter. Along the way, he's discovered some companies are able to innovate over and over again, and others don't. And so he and his three colleagues researched this issue and wrote this new book, Collective Genius, and the results may surprise you. So we're going to talk about that today. Greg, welcome to The Engaging Leader. Thank you. This is great. Greg, the subtitle of your book is The Art and Practice of Leading Innovation. What is it about innovation that makes it so difficult and rare for organizations to do it consistently? My simple answer to that is is that organizations typically don't have the right mindset. And as you said in your introduction, leaders typically think of themselves being at the top and telling everybody else what to do. But diversity of thought really, really matters. And everybody has a slice of genius in them. And so if you rethink the role of the leader as being the person who is hiring a bunch of really smart people and creating the context in which each of them can be the best that they can be, then you're going to get more out of your organization. So uh, having ideas rubbing up against each other produces better ideas. Uh, Creating a community where people uh, have the same goals and values and purpose matters to keep the organization together. And so leaders, instead of thinking about telling everybody, you know, having all the answers and telling everybody else what to do, their job is to say, here's what the challenge is. You guys figure out how we get there. That's, I think that's the summary of, uh, that's the 50 million foot summary of our book. One thing that's interesting is it, it almost sounds like you're saying, look, just create a culture, if you will, and some space for people to work in and then stand back and let them go at it. But you are pretty clear in the book that the role of the leader is not a completely passive role either, that innovation has some real paradoxes behind it, some some tension that in a way needs to be, I don't know if managed is the right word, but certainly needs some leadership to keep that environment and, and that uh, context appropriate. What, what are some of those paradoxes that make innovation so complicated? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. So one way to think about that is, you know, a lot of people think that constraints, this isn't one of our paradoxes, 
explicitly, but one of the pe- one thing that people say about creative organizations is that in order to be really creative, you don't want any constraints. And actually, you do want constraints. And so the leader is applying constraints to the organization. So for example, at Pixar, the constraint on everybody making a movie is the movie's shipping on this day. So the constraint is that, right? And so the end leader enforces that. The leader enforces things like um, uh, support and confrontation inside of an organization. So individually, you want to support a human being, one person. But at the same time, you need the collective of the organization to be working uh, towards a, a same goal. So sometimes you're supporting an individual in their desire to take a vacation at a bad time. And sometimes you're supporting the organization when the individual wants to take a vacation at a bad time and saying, hey, could you change that? And so there are all these tensions that you're trying to balance back and forth. Another one would be, you know, top-down versus bottom-up decision-making. So sometimes the leader's just going to say, this is what we're going to do. And sometimes the leader's going to make sure that that bubbles up from the bottom. It's these types of paradoxes that... uh, and they're paradoxes because it seems like you can't do the you can't have both of those things going on at the same time, but you can, and that's what of course makes it a paradox. Yeah. So, for example, you want people to be to experiment and try new things and go through different iterations, uh, and yet at some point you've got to deliver on time and within budget. So you, you've got to the experimenting and learning and iteration has to come to some resolution at some point. That's exactly right. So as an example, um, you know, what you're getting at there is um, in an innovative organization, uh, things are changing. Actually, if you look around the world, the rate of change of change is faster than it was, say, 10 years ago, right? Lots of disruptive technologies are coming out and changing how we work, how we think. So, I mean, think about this, you know, tech, you know, SMS messaging and uh, uh, cell phones haven't really been around that long, and they've really sh- reshaped the way we work. How about this? An iPad hasn't been around that long, and that's really reshaped how we think about how we work and how we p- provide information to people, how we collaborate, because with an iPad, for example, you know, you could do a, a Skype uh, video call, and you couldn't do that 10 years ago. Right? Just sitting in your living room, you couldn't, just, you couldn't just do this. Okay, so the reason I'm saying about that is that there's a tension between the short-term and long-term. So I'm going to argue that what we're going to be doing three years from now is different than what we're doing today. So we constantly have to be looking ahead and saying, how is the world changing three years from now? But at the same time, we need to be delivering today because if we don't deliver today, we won't be around three years from now. Right, So there's this tension between those two things, and what the manager, leader, is trying to do is help the organization sort of tickle and tease apart, or tease apart these two different uh, opposing ideas and allowing uh, both to happen, but not one at the expense of the other, right? It's a balance between the two of them. Another one, another obvious one that we have in our book is called Improvisation versus Structure. Many of the problems that you think about in terms of innovation is, uh, are, by definition, solving uh, problems that are new, 
So our definition of innovation is something that's new, novel, uh, and useful. You know, you can invent something new, but not useful, not very interesting, right? You're not going to make any money at that. So you have this challenge when you're starting off of how do you build an organization to build this new thing that's never been built before. So I started at Pixar when I, and I think I was employee 120. And we were a tiny little company, had just finished Toy Story. And that was the first computer-generated film ever made. Let me tell you, you look back on Pixar's history and you look at what we did and you think, we all know what we were doing. We didn't have a clue what we were doing, <laughs> okay? We were making it up. And so that's improvisation, right? Mm-hmm. And improvisation uh, works great when, you don't, when you're first starting on something. But then you realize, okay, I've done two movies and I've learned something about how to make a movie. So I shouldn't you know, stray over here and do these things because I've learned that that doesn't work so well. And I have learned these things work a little bit better. And so suddenly you start having structure being applied, right? So you have this tension between improvisation where you're making it up and structure, you've learned kind of how to do that. And so you put in some processes so that you don't have to like make, you know, continually, you know, handcraft something. You can have a simple process everybody understands. And so these are the tensions that you're thinking about. In the book, the it's organized primarily into the aspects of leadership that make people willing to innovate or want to innovate, despite a lot of those really hard paradoxes and issues for example if a lot of that is and that willingness and want to a lot of that is cultural if you've got the a culture where people don't feel that they can throw out ideas however crazy they may be because there's punishment for that or ridicule then they're just going to get to the point where they're not willing to provide those ideas yeah that's exactly right so one of the big uh ideas another big idea in our book is that uh in order to be innovative you need to be both willing and able to do so. So in the willing part, which is what I think you're talking about, is uh, building a community, a culture of way of thinking where it's acceptable for anybody to say what they think on a particular topic. And you want your idea, you know, you want the decisions to go to the person who is most uh, uh, knowledgeable and competent in that particular space for that decision to be made. It may not be the actual leader that's making the decision. It may be somebody who's the most junior person in the company just because they're the expert at that, right? So being willing, we talk about building a community where people are, uh, they have a purpose, why are we here? But not only that, they have a bond with all of the other people in the company and they know that those other people have their back. And so it really is building a community where it's a team and you know that the other people think of it as your success is my success and my success is your success. And this really matters once you start talking about our, what we talk about capabilities because if I'm going to debate with you vigorously ideas and we have completely different opinions about how something should be done, what is going to keep us from... Uh, flying apart and just saying, well, I don't want to talk to that guy anymore. I'm going over here. I'm going to play in my own sandbox. And what holds it together is the community, the sense of purpose, and the trust between the, the team members. And so when, we're making, when we were at Pixar making a film, the directors would get notes 
and this would be notes from everybody in the company, from the chef, from the from the chef in the kitchen to the people who do the dishes in the kitchen to security guards to the head of finance to the other directors, and they're all giving this the the main director notes on what they think is good or bad about their film. Uh, but the director didn't have to take those notes as you must change these things. These are hints about what is working in his movie or not. So if one person says this isn't working so well, it may, you know, you may not listen. But if 50 people say, I don't understand this, you probably want to pay attention. It's pretty amazing when you think about these are blockbuster films. Each one is worth about a billion dollars. And yet anybody in the company, right down to, let's say, the receptionist or the janitor, can offer their opinion to the director on, on a, with an idea or something liked, they liked or didn't like. Yes, that's exactly right. And so Pixar is absolutely a team sport. But I, I think that many other companies can be exactly the same way. And the reason we wrote our book the way we did, which is we didn't just write about Pixar, although that's what we happen, you and I happen to be talking about at the moment. We went around the world to look at other places because we thought people would laugh at us if we just wrote about Pixar. <laughs> because, well, that's Pixar. And, well, of course they can do it, but they're an exception, right? They're not the rule. And so we talked to law firms, we talked to Islamic banks, we talked to luxury good manufacturers, we talked to high-tech companies, and we went you know, to Germany, to the Middle East, to Korea, to India, and the U.S. And we found that certain truths um, were in, in innovative companies held to be true. And so part of it was you could see the community in all of these companies that they got, that there was a culture of wanting to be the best, uh, as Steve Jobs would say, uh, be insanely great, right? We call that bold ambition, okay? Mm -hmm. It's really wanting to do the best at whatever thing you are in. So you could be at a law firm. So we, we talked to DLA Piper, and this law firm is just amazing in how much innovation that they have and the rethinking of how they're going to do law. Greg, tell us the story about the, the law firm story. Yeah, so we met Amy Shulman early on, and she's a one of the world's best female lawyers. And you know, I hate that they say it that way because I would actually argue that she's one of the best lawyers in the world. Period. But she's ranked number one as you know female lawyer. So okay, by on face value, she knows what she's doing. But she came up with some pretty clever and innovative things that typical law firms don't do. So, for example. If you're going to be litigating a large, complicated process or, or, or product where it's not clear what the answers are about why it works or doesn't work, so you can imagine a drug, you know, it's he said, she said in terms of you have experts on both sides, um, how does one single law firm be able to bring all of the capabilities of people who know about side effects or people know about manufacturing or people know about how prescriptions are made, you're not going to find that all in one law firm. And so Amy came up with the idea of creating a virtual law firm where she invited other law firms to sit at the same table with her to discuss who could handle the different areas best. So instead of being proprietary and saying, you know, you don't get first seat at the table, we're in charge. She brought all those law firms together and said, everybody has an equal voice at this table, and we're going to work together on this as a team. 
And it turns out this worked out really well for her. Um, she saved Pfizer a ton of money by doing this. Uh, she also, with DLA Piper, did the same. But also then, in doing this, she found out that people wanted to work together more because they weren't just, you know, an add-on. It's like, I'm a consultant to your, to your process. They were actually part of a team responsible for the end result. And that brought out the best in everybody. So it worked in so many different dimensions. Uh, you had different expertise. You had uh, community built. Uh, you had same goals. Um, you had people trusting each other. And this is not typical, I think, of legal work. It might be today, but it wasn't, you know, seven years ago when we talked to her first. Well, it certainly would not be typical where you have 20 different law firms serving a client. And, I mean, historically, you had a situation where anybody who has a little an edge on the other law firms is going to hold that close to their vest. And in order to grow their overall share of the work with, with the client. So it's, it's pretty amazing what she accomplished there. It, basically, she applied a lot of the principles in the book. And, and most of the other stories in the book are about what happens with internal teams. So these are all employees of a single entity. But here you, you've described this innovation ecosystem where people are essentially volunteers that are, are collaborating with, with you. And there isn't that sort of uh, authority, I guess, uh, that, that ties people together. That's right. In that chapter, I think, is Collective Genius 2.0, because we could see that many firms might find themselves in a situation where it would be beneficial for them to collaborate with uh, partners that are in the same space as they are, because uh, each one of them may not have all the answers, or they may not have enough resources, or they may not have enough knowledge, whatever. And so... That's why we, we wrote about Amy, because she was out there thinking way ahead, I think, of, of her competitors about how to do these types of things. And that's what we're, when we look forward, we think that this may be the case. And, you know, time will tell. We don't know yet. But uh, certainly in this case, this did work. Now, at the heart of all of this, at least from the conventional viewpoint, would be the leader. And the book is, has this basic contrast between the conventional role of the leader versus how the best leaders of innovation view their role. And you touched on this earlier, but can you make sure that's clear for us? Sure. So let me talk about Vineet Nair, who was at HCL. And he came the CEO and founder of HCL, which is an Indian uh, IT company. They used to be the leader in their space at the time that it was founded um, by the by the founder, right? And they built the company up, but then they got lost and uh, the founder wanted to retire and he asked Benit, Benit, will you take over? And Benit's like, I've never run a 55,000 person company. I don't know how to do this. And anyway, he was convinced to do it. He had a traditional role of leadership, but he realized when he went in that if he used the traditional role of leadership, he was not going to be successful. So he went in and he said to the company, to his senior staff, look, I've never run a 55,000 person company. You guys need to help me. I understand what we're trying to do here, but I don't have all the skills and expertise to do this properly. So I need your help. 
So that was one thing that he did was saying, and this, you know, imagine in an IT in India where it's very hierarchical that the leader would say, I don't know all the answers. That's kind of <laughs> shocking. But he did a couple things that um, I think he learned through time. And it, I hope it's illustrated in our chapter three of the book clearly. But let me just say briefly a few of the things that I thought were quite interesting about things he did. So when he first started, he had to start getting the company to change direction somehow. And so he got uh, a bunch of, he got 30 kids together um, and he called them the Young Sparks. And he said, I want you to think about what we as a company need to do in order to compete because we're number six now and we used to be number one. And they, these 30 kids sat down and they thought about this for, I don't know, a couple months. And they came back with, uh, we think that uh, we should talk about the employees first and customers second. And we think that this will really change how the company works. And so imagine that you're an IT consulting company and you go out to your clients and you say, you know, we've decided that we have a new motto at our company and it's employees first, customer second. <laughs> and you, Mr. Customer, are second. <laughs> you could imagine how that would go over. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were quite worried about going out and saying this to people. But when they went to their customers and explained why they were doing this, the customers were elated because what, he, what they were really saying is, we're going to take care of our employees so that they can focus on getting, doing the best possible job for you. But if we don't take care of them first so that they are part of a team and they're all supported, they're not going to do the best work for you. And this resonated with the customers and it resonated with the company and so they did that. Another thing that Vineet did was he said, you know, I realize that there are a lot of questions because there's a lot of change going on in the company right now. So he set up using their intranet a way to ask the CEO questions. And so all week long, people would uh, send in questions. And on Sunday, Vineet would answer as many of those questions as he could. In fact, they had so many questions coming in from the 55,000 people that he had to hire you know, a little staff to organize the questions so that he could answer them, right? So on Sunday, Vineet would answer questions for, for the entire company. Whatever the question was, didn't matter what it, what it was. If somebody had a question and it caught Vineet's eye as, as being important enough to be answered because he couldn't answer them all, right, he'd answer it. But one of the things that I found most interesting about this is that Vineet discovered that the people were asking really smart questions and actually had kind of good insights into what was going on. In fact, better insights about all of their customers individually than he did in aggregate, right? Because there's no way that he can know everything that 55,000 people know, right? Right. Okay. And he realized as he's going through this time of answering questions that maybe he shouldn't do it this way. And so he flipped it around and he put out a, here are the questions that I have does anybody in the company have an answer for these? So he completely inverted the leader at the top answering everybody else's questions to the leader being at the bottom and saying, here's the problems that I see. Does anybody know how to solve these? And so he would allow people anywhere in the company to answer, here's what I think we should do about that. And if it was a good idea, then they would empower those people to go and pursue their proposed solution to Vineet's problem. And to me, this is a really unbelievable way of thinking about 
your role as a leader, instead of saying, here's what the answers are, saying, here's what the problems are. Can you help me? Very different. And that worked super well. So they went from last to first in the period of like three years. Uh, they had amazing growth uh, during that three years. I think they, over a period of six years, I think they grew, their company grew something, their revenue something like 600%. So what we're talking about here isn't just, oh, he changed the company a little bit. This was dramatic change. And it's a little easy to say, to write that off and say, well, they were in trouble, special situation. He was brand new to that role. So sure, I could see Vineet saying, I don't have all the answers. I need you guys to help me answer them. But you pointed out earlier, Greg, that the rate of change in the business environment today is so rapid that every organization and every leader really needs to recognize that they're in that same situation, that they can't possibly know everything they need to know to answer the questions. They, they, they can't even possibly know everything to, that they're asking the right questions. They need help just to frame the right questions. That's exactly right. So, you know, it's, it's funny that you say it that way because many years ago when I first became a manager, I got promoted, of course, from an individual contributor to a manager just like everybody else does because I was, did a really good job. But when I became a manager, uh, the people that worked for me were sort of my, they were originally my peers and now I'm their boss, right? And I had done many of the functions that each of these people had done. And I knew that I could do each of those jobs, let's say, just because I had more experience, better than each of those people. So you could imagine that I could be smarter than, say, two people, right? And I could do the same amount of work as two people. But, you know, if you get to 10 people, really? Can I do as much work as 10 people? And if you get to 100 people, I mean, seriously, do you think I'm smarter than 100 people? And that caused me to realize, oh, my God, my job as the manager is not to be smarter than everybody else. My job as the manager is to find out what slice of genius each person has and bring the best out in that person and then put challenges in front of them. And I think that this is true whether you're in trouble or not, just because, uh, I mean, you were talking about the Neats company sort of being, you know, lap, being number six, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, if you want to stay at the head, you have to be like Andy Grove said, you know, only the paranoid survive, right? But, you know, paranoia doesn't have to express itself in people getting beaten, it could express itself in you creating an environment where the employees feel valued and trusted, uh, where they can contribute usefully, and recognizing that you're not smarter than all those people because your job as a manager is to hire people smarter than you. And if you do that, and then you let people go, they will work wonders. One of the things that struck me as interesting about the book, Greg, is that you worked with Steve Jobs, of course, the legendary co-founder of Apple and the sort of known as the brains behind innovations like the iPhone. He's not really mentioned in the book. And I'm wondering, is, does he symbolize that, that more conventional model of innovative leadership where he's the smartest guy in the room who sets the vision for everyone else to execute? You know, that's a really great question. We, we wrote about Pixar, not Apple. And by the time we started thinking about who we were going to write about. Um, we just didn't happen to write about Apple. But Steve was the CEO of both Apple and Pixar at the same time. But Ed was the founder of Pixar and John Lasseter. Uh, and Steve bought 
uh, Pixar from George Lucas in 1986 for, I don't know, $10 million and sold it to Disney in uh, 2006, exactly 20 years later, for $7.4 billion. Not a bad return. Not a bad return. <laughs> and, you know, you could, um, you could argue that maybe Steve was lucky or whatever. And I'm going to tell you that he actually was that good. He did really smart things that helped us at Pixar be successful by knowing that he, there were some things that he knew about and some things that he didn't know about. So he would never believe that he knew how to make a movie better than our Academy Award winning directors. And instead of telling them what was, that their, you know, what was wrong with their movies and how to fix them, as you might see in Hollywood, he would tell them, I see your movie. It doesn't resonate with me. I don't get it. I think you need to go back and think about it. Okay. And so, again, it's not the leader telling somebody else what to do. It's the leader saying, that's not good enough, right? We can do better. And so that's where Steve played a great role in helping us. And he also helped us in other ways in terms of how to build a community. And here's actually, to me, one of the more powerful stories that you know, Steve did at Pixar. When we made Toy Story 2, we were originally going to make that for going to direct to DVD. So it was not going to go in the movie theaters. It was just going to go on DVD because you could sell the DVDs based on the success of Toy Story, right? But so nobody, the reason I'm telling you that way is because we were busy making A Bug's Life, which was the next feature film coming up. And so the whole company, and we were making it up at the time, except for a very small team of people were working on A Bug's Life. But there was a team of people that were, you know, directors and story writers and artists that were developing Toy Story 2 so that when the people finished up on A Bug's Life, they could be deployed on Toy Story 2 and finish up that movie. Well, when John came up for air after having finished A Bug's Life and had an opportunity to actually really look at uh, Toy Story 2, he realized this movie's not good enough. Uh, it could, it's great. I mean, it, excuse me, I misspoke. It's good but it could be great. And so we stopped the movie for three months. Seriously, the whole company stopped for three months while the story team went and rewrote the movie. Everybody else did what they had to do, like the tools people, they rebuilt their tools. The artists, they drew new, new artwork. The layout people, they created new you know, sets and so forth, right? But everybody basically was prepared for, we're going to have to work hard. We didn't change the release date. So we were nine months out from uh, finishing this film, and these films take four and five years to, to do. And we got nine months left. We stopped for three months, and now we have six months left. <laughs> okay? And we got the film done. Let me just tell you, that was ridiculously hard. But Toy Story 2 was one of the better films that Pixar ever made, and you can see that at the box office. So our head of HR, Ed Martin, said to Steve, Steve, we, this company just killed themselves for you. And I think that we should give everybody a bonus. And Steve was not having any of it. And Ed kept on calling him and Steve just wasn't having any of it. Until one day, Steve calls back Ed and says, Ed, you're right, but you're not thinking big enough. The way we should think about this is if we make money on a movie, we should figure out how much of that we can share with the employees. And we're going to divide that up on pay, by payroll weeks. We're not going to have a, oh, well, you did this much work, and so you get this percentage of bonus. Or 
oh, you're in this class of people, and so you get this percentage of bonus. Oh, you're the director, so you get a bigger bonus. What we're going to do is we're going to say, how much money do we have? How many payroll weeks is that? And let's say it's two and a half payroll weeks. Everybody gets two and a half weeks of pay. So it's completely fair. Everybody can see it, and everybody can see that when they contribute to making that movie be successful, they participate in the uh, earnings of that film. And what did the, what's this do for aligning people's goals to working on that film? So it really reinforced the idea that is what I am doing helping that movie be better? Yes. Okay, do more of it. No, don't do that anymore. And this also built the sense of community where everybody was treated fairly. And there was never, to my knowledge, there was never an exception made where a bonus was paid to somebody differently than just using the simple rule. Now, obviously, if you'd only been working on the film for a certain amount of time, you know, there's some gradations here. Uh, you might only got part of the, the, the two weeks or whatever it was, the end weeks that you were being paid. But if you were there for the whole time, you got the full bonus, just like everybody else did. Now, obviously, if you made more money, the bonus you got was bigger. And if you made less money, the amount of money you got was less. But everybody got the same amount uh, in terms of work weeks of pay. And to me, that was a brilliant insight on Steve's part because it aligned everybody's goals inside the company to help each other be successful. Well, we've mostly been talking about really the, the first part of the book about how to create this community based built on a shared purpose and creating the values and kind of the what you call the rules of engagement or the norms about how we, we work together. Greg, in the second part of the book, it's all about how leaders create the ability to innovate. Can you give us a, an overview of that section? Sure. So we talk about three capabilities that a company needs to have to be in a really innovative. Uh, one of them is uh, creative abrasion. Another is creative agility. And the third is creative resolution. Creative abrasion is the idea that we're going to have vigorous discussions with each other. You may not criticize the other person, but you may criticize the other person's ideas. And the purpose of this is to make your ideas better by choosing the best idea, not whose idea, right? So um, as an example, you know, we all, you know, you, you, you're in the middle of the night, you're asleep and you come up with this great idea and then you wake up in the morning and you realize oh, that wasn't such a great idea. And what happens with creative abrasion is other people talking with you about your ideas, they poke at them and they cause you to think about them in different, the, the problem they're trying to solve in different ways maybe. And it allows for yes and thinking instead of yes but thinking. So people building on each other's ideas. The next piece is creative agility. And that's the, that's the idea of doing a bunch of tests uh, to figure out will that work. And you try and do as, as simple, lightweight tests as you possibly can so that you can get feedback on is this idea going to pan out or not. Um, and then the last part is creative resolution. And this is the ability to make decisions uh, in an appropriate way. So, you know, an example of this is a lot of people do this thing called you know, you get into a room and somebody says, okay, so what should we do? And, you know, they try and do a compromise between, you know, 
group A and group B, and so what you get is the lowest common denominator. And we all know that the lowest common denominator is never the best solution. <laughs> and what companies that are really innovative will do is that they will allow people to uh, take parts of A and parts of B and come up with C, which is a whole new idea. And this is by doing yes and instead of, oh, politically, I've got more power and so we're going to do my solution. It's everybody really understanding that we're really trying to come up with the best solution. And the thing that I find fascinating is that many people or many organizations that I have been in or had the luxury to go in and see, you sometimes see the problem of go along to get along. And so instead of speaking your mind in, in a creative abrasion way or in a creative resolution way, you just sit there and you agree with whoever's the most important person in that room. And the problem with that is, is that if that person, if the most important person in that room is wrong and you know it and you don't help, then you're going to go down a path that's no good. Another example, I think, of where people are misled by diversity and diversity of thought is, you know, people think that, you know, I need to have, you know, an Asian and an African American and a white male and a female this and somebody from India. And that's not really what we, what is meant by diversity of thought. Diversity of thought is really people who think differently. Now, it may be that they all come from different backgrounds, like I just described, but it may be that they don't. But what's crazy is that sometimes you go to companies and they have got an amazingly diverse workforce. And then the first thing they do is they try and make everybody be the same because we have all the same rules and the same, uh, uh, we dress the same, we look the same, we talk the same. And so even though we all come from different backgrounds and have different ideas, we, the company has, through their culture, express that it's not okay to be different. It's not okay to think differently. It's not okay to speak your mind. And in fact, the good companies actually amplify the differences from between people rather than minimize the differences between people. Because the amplification causes the spirited debates that then allow better solutions to come up with. Whereas if you minimizing the differences, you're losing all of the debate and ideas. So these are the kind, you know, these three capabilities, agility, uh, abrasion, and resolution are really key to being able to be innovative along and what holds that together because when you're having an abrasion, you know, you're having a debate or you're doing, you know, an experiment that you did didn't go right, there's a lot of pressure on you. Let's not kid ourselves that there's a lot of pressure on you because, you know, everybody wants to have a career. And if you just failed at something, you know, what's going to happen? Well, the community piece is what holds this all together. And that's why we talk about the willingness, the community, and the capabilities as going hand in hand because the community holds the whole thing together and creates the sense of purpose because some of these discussions, when you're talking about creative abrasion, they are actually really intense discussions. And unless you know that that other person that sitting across the table from you has your back, you're not going to say what you think. But once you know that person has your back and is actually looking out for your best interest, you're going to say what you think and you're going to listen to what they say. So these are some examples of how uh, companies kind of are doing the right things. They, you know, they have the right spirit of, you know, we should have diversity, but then they minimize the diversity, right? Or you know, uh, to go along, to get along where, you know, people, instead of having creative abrasion ideas, 
they just you know say what the most important person says because that's the way the company works. And what we're arguing is you don't want to do it that way. Can you give us an example of how that amplification might work, how a leader would, could amplify the diversity of thought? If I don't feel safe to say what it is that I think in a meeting, I'm not going to say what I think. So the leader's role is to make sure that people feel safe in what they're saying and that they're not going to have retribution for saying something that is not that people don't want to hear, right? The leader's job then becomes making sure that these conversations don't get out of hand and that the company doesn't become too go along to get along. Their job is to make sure that the debates happen and that while I have individual support for you, I have collective support for the company. And so I want you two to argue with each other. So, I mean, that sounds kind of crazy, right? Because I want the company to get along well. So I have these two different, you know, these are the paradox that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And the way I express this to people that work for me is that I tell everybody that works for me, look, when you come into my office, I want you to tell me exactly what you think. If you think I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Uh, Because it is, and actually this is something I learned from Steve Jobs, it's more important to be successful than it is to be right. And so I want the people that work for me to come and tell me, no, you're wrong. If we do it this way, it'll be better because then I will be more successful. Yes. And the thing that has to happen, and I can model the behavior that I'm talking about in terms of amplifying the diversity is when somebody comes into my office and says, you're wrong about this. The first person that I shoot for having come and told me something I don't want to hear that's the last time anybody is going to come into my office and tell me something I don't want to hear, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is going to spread like wildfire throughout the organization that Greg just chewed out somebody for being an idiot, right? If I ever do that, then nobody's nobody's going to say what they think. And so this this is how a leader can do something that is different than traditional. You have to actually let people say what they think and listen to them. Now, it may be that they're right and it may be that they're wrong, I'm not saying that I'm going to roll over if somebody comes into my office and says, I think you're wrong about this. I'm going to debate with them. And they, I'm, but I am going to be open to the possibility that I am wrong, right? And I'm going to listen to the people that are telling me things. And this is what I, this is how I guess would be an example of modeling the behavior of allowing diverse thoughts to be there and allows, allowing people to say crazy things to you, even though it turns out that they might not be right. And you can have those debates, but this will allow them to then go out and have debates with their colleagues uh, in a similar way, because you are modeling that it's okay to talk this way. And sometimes you've mentioned cases in the book where leaders make a point of calling out the quieter people in the group. What do you think? Or someone that they know has a has a contrary viewpoint and encouraging them to talk about that with the group. Oh yeah, that's, that's another actually good example. So part of the leader's job, as you're pointing out here, is setting a cultural norm for saying what they think. So in the military, I was, I was in the Air Force for a while. One of the things I learned is that when we would be in a room and having a meeting, they wouldn't ask the most senior person what their idea was first. They would ask the most junior person what their idea was first. 
Because otherwise, if the senior person says we should do X, do you think anybody's going to contra contradict X? But if you allow people at the very beginning to say exactly what they think with no repercussions, then they're going to then they're going to uh, move on. Uh, they're going to say what, what they think. Um, so a leader in the room is actually has to see who is not spoken and check in with them and say, you know, do you have anything to add? Because you know we haven't heard from you. You know, what do you think? Uh, because some people have great ideas, but they're just quiet, retiring people, and they may not be comfortable speaking up. And you have to bring it out and make sure that they feel safe and secure in saying what they think. And then, on the other hand, you have people that are really vociferous and adamant and arguing for their point violently, and you need to tone them down. So you're balancing these two things, right? You have some people that are a little bit uh, quieter, and you have some people that are a little bit louder. But you, you want all those viewpoints to come out. And the leader has to make sure that the people that are really forceful are not drowning out the people who are not as forceful, and vice versa, which is what a lot of companies do is you're not allowed to be forceful in your ideas. Well, okay, that's great, but that means that those people that had really good ideas and are normally forceful – they're not going to say what they think because you're not supposed to be forceful. I want people to express themselves in a way that is comfortable for them to express themselves as long as they're not being a jerk. So Bob Sutton wrote this great book, The No Asshole Rule, mm -hmm. and it's so true, that book. And so I just don't want jerks in my organization so that everybody else knows that when they say something that they'll be listened to and they're not going to feel bad that this other person's going to pick on them. So this is what the leader's role is to do, is to make sure that the rules of engagement are being followed. Greg, on that concept of creative agility, in the book you tell this great story of eBay Germany and how it began this uh, approach of having these micro-projects. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, this is a really interesting point about how in Silicon Valley, there's this term going around, uh, which is fail quickly. And the term fail quickly is really, you know, sort of counterintuitive that you, you want to go out and fail quickly. I don't want to go out and fail quickly. I want to go out and succeed quickly, right? But it's provocative. And what Tim Brown, who I think coined this term, meant by it is um, when you release something out, a real product out into the world, you want that to be successful. So that means along the way while you're developing it, you need to do a bunch of little experiments. So in eBay Germany, they were not tied to the mothership back here in Sunnyvale, uh, California. And they had the freedom to go and do little one-off experiments of, well, I wonder what happens if we do a contest to see who can sell the most whatever uh, this weekend and we'll give a reward for that? Or what happens if we um, do a promotion around Christmas time that, uh, you know, whoever buys, you know, the most of these things, then they get some, you know, reward for as being a customer, right? And so they had all these different little ideas, which nobody really knew whether they were going to work or not. But they were small enough and they were far enough away from the mothership to say, okay, well, we're going to try this and see what happens. But they weren't betting the farm on any of these ideas. These were just simple things to find out what the customers 
really liked about shopping at eBay Germany and then trying to do some things that would enhance that. And then you would do an experiment. At the end of the experiment, you'd look at the results and you'd say, um, what worked and what didn't. And then you would do another experiment with along the same ideas. It might not be the exact same idea, but you would take the learnings from that previous experiment and apply them to the next one you're going to do. And as a result of doing this, they went up the learning curve of what their customers wanted enormously fast because they did just tiny little experiments instead of trying to make it perfect. They, you know, they did good enough and they instrumented it well enough so that they got data and they could look at it. And they learned about what their customers' preferences were and what worked and what didn't work. And they learned, by the way, how, guess what, when you do some of these experiments, there's going to be mistakes and people are going to game the system. And there were cases in eBay Germany where somebody figured out how to game the system and they had to shut an experiment down because somebody had gamed the system so well that you know they were earning thousands of dollars a day by getting the rewards because they wrote a program that went through and you know looked at what you know eBay was doing by you know trying different uh, bidding strategies, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> as a result, they figured out how to game the system. So things like that came up, and the ability they never viewed each of these experiments as this is the final product. They viewed it as how will this make the pro- our overall product better? And they did lightweight experiments that were for a short duration. They learned something from it. They applied those learnings to the next one, and then they went on. And, and you can see that you're going to go up the learning curve much more quickly than if you just say, here's our end target that we're trying to get, and then you just build that thing and release it. What they were doing is they were building a thing, seeing what happened, saying, oh, that didn't work or it did work, and then they would adjust, and then they would do that again. And every time, they'd get a little bit better at what they were doing instead of trying to guess at the beginning where they, what was going to work at the end. Now, this is not the same thing as doing a pilot program. What's, what's the difference here? Yeah, so a pilot program, what typically companies mean by that is that they have already built something and then it's ready for customer release. And so the pilot is putting it out um, in front of customers and saying, you know, uh, here's, you know, here's our new product and you're figuring out the pricing and you're figuring out the colors, but minor little changes, not fundamentally changes in, in what the product does. And I would argue that the innovations that Apple came up with, the iPhone and so forth, would never have come out from a pilot program. Hmm. Uh, they came about from people having insights into what people actually needed from their phones and making them better. But anyway, um, a pilot program is really just meant to be. It is, at that point, you've already committed, you're putting a product out into the marketplace, and everybody knows that this is the real product. And if that fails, that's really bad for your brand, and it's really bad for the people that were associated with it. But the experiments that led up to generating a pilot, it's okay if those fail because you're learning something from it and you never expected that to be the answer in the first place. What you're trying to do from those little experiments along the way and why we call it creative agility is to learn as quickly as possible what is going to work so that when you do have the pilot, it will work. So one way of thinking about a pilot versus these experiments is that the experiments are in some level, micro-pilots. 
and the pilot itself is a macro pilot. So you're doing these little, tiny, tiny little pilots that there's no downside if it doesn't work perfectly. I mean, not material downside. With the intent of the information you're learning from that, uh, making the actual pilot be better. It should be when you release a pilot into the world that it just works, mm-hmm. right? And that's what the goal is in doing all these little steps along the way is because you're trying to gather as much information as quickly as you can, as cheaply as you can, because you got to go fast, 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 because guess what? All your competitors are too, right? Right. Well, the book is Collective Genius, The Art and Practice of Leading Innovation. We've been talking to Greg Brando. Greg, where can people find out more about this book and about your work? So we have a website. It's called uh, collectivegeniusbook.com. And there we have listings of all the different places you can buy it. If you want to buy in bulk, we have a place where you can buy in bulk. Uh, We have descriptions of all of our authors and our backgrounds, uh, how we came to write the book. Uh, There's a description about the book. And, of course, there's, you know, buy here because we are trying to sell a book. And we've tried to make it convenient for everybody to just go to this website. And you can choose whether you want to shop at Apple or Amazon or Google or Barnes & Noble. And we try to make that simple for people. Uh, It turns out that on our website, we do have a place where people can ask if you want to, uh, if they're interested in having one of us come and speak. And my my particular one is going through the lay bureau uh, speaker group, and they handle my speaking engagements. Greg Brando, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. And we'll provide the information and links that Greg mentioned, as well as his social media information, on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 94, as in episode 94. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comments section, or by clicking the red send voicemail button. You can also engage with us at facebook.com forward slash engagingleader, or on Twitter, where I am at Jesse Leahy. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 